I was like, wait, where's my recording angel at? Um, he's under the weather. He's under the weather. He was under the weather this morning. He was the one causing the weather or something. All right. Uh, well, we are in uh, class three tonight on um, angels, demons, spiritual warfare. We have uh, made a transition in our class from, uh, from angels our first two weeks, and now we pick up uh, Satan and demons this week. We'll also be, we'll be off next Sunday, and then we'll pick up the next Sunday. When we do, we'll pick up the same topic. This is part one of part two. Um, it may be a part three. <laughs> we'll see. I'm still working through how to, how to squeeze everything into next, next, next class. But tonight we're going to look at six classes. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be seven, and I'm going to miss one, so I'm trying to squeeze it all into a six. Um, We have uh, so this this class we're going to look at kind of an introduction to Satan and demons. We're going to look at names in the scripture. We're going to look at origin. We're going to look at uh, character and that kind of thing. And then next week, uh, or the following week after after next, when we're in class again, we'll look at more tactics and strategies that we pick up in scripture of what Satan and demons and how, how they come at us. And so we'll be able to, almost like, almost like your C.S. Lewis book that you're reading, kind of that angle of looking at um, kind of a, a, a schemes, as the scripture seems to use, schemes that Satan uses and plans. And so, so we'll get to that uh, the following week. All right, any questions before we get started? If you, if you didn't get a, um, a form there at the, the front door there, or entryway. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, reflect on a subject that uh, is, is really important for us, God, to understand um, our enemy, Satan, and his demons are, are constantly at work, uh, unbeknownst to us many times. I uh, pray, God, that you would uh, give us clarity of thought, uh, help us as we think through this subject matter. Uh, Lord, it's not meant to make us afraid. For, God, we are confident uh, that, God, you are the supreme God, and really the only God, as we'll talk about tonight, God. And, uh, and so I pray that uh, you would encourage us by your strength uh, and by your power, and that, Lord, you would uh, uh, give us wisdom as we uh, decipher through these texts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are on question number 18 in our notes. We made it through 17. And uh, we'll start this way. Uh, the question 18 is, what are the two extremes Christians can fall into when thinking about Satan demons? What do you think about that? What are kind of the two extreme sides when thinking about Satan and demons that Christians can fall into, especially. They're not real. Okay, well, one side, they're, they're not real. They don't even exist, right? No big deal. That's one side. What's the other side? That's right. And so an over-obsession and fearfulness as a result, right? Those are two extremes. Um, in, um, which I wrote, Christians can experience either intellectual, I'll call it intellectual apathy, um, or crippling fear. That's kind of the two things. Intellectual apathy... Uh, it may not go so far as to say, I don't think demons exist at all, but it's more of an apathy of like, yeah, who cares, right? Or a crippling fear when it comes to Satan and demons. And they are happy with either one, by the way. Uh, either one of those you fall into, they're happy with that. that that's kind of part of their strategy. Uh, in your book uh, by C.S. Lewis um, uh, that I gave to you, Screwtape Letters, he begins the introduction with a, a, a good quote. It's a famous quote. Matter of fact, every book I've read on angels and demons they quote this, this, this part as an introduction to theirs. Uh, and it's this. This is what Lewis said. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall um, about, about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and, or a magician with the same Delight. All right, so let's look at his language for a second. He uses the word materialist and magician. 
Um, the materialists are those who I would say, those, those ones who are just indifferent or apathetic. They, materialists meaning only what, what really matters in life is what you can see, feel, taste, touch, right? Um, the, the, the spiritual world, it may be there, it may exist, but really it doesn't make any difference in my life whatsoever. Um, and, and some just flat out don't believe. I told you when we were doing angels that 80% polls say of Americans believe that angels exist. The latest is 60% of Americans don't believe that Satan exists. Isn't that interesting? 80% believe angels, absolutely. Satan, yeah, that's old Middle Ages, kind of archaic, you know, fear-mongering kind of uh, reality that, that the, the religious people try to throw at you. So 60% of people don't even believe Satan even exists. Um, for others, um, the reason that they're more apathetic to it is honestly because life is maybe just kind of easy. Life doesn't seem to feel, you don't feel much resistance. Um, a lot of times, and we'll hit on this a lot, that if you're not, uh, A, if you're not following Jesus closely, or B, if you're not actually working to get the gospel out, you're not on mission as the language I like to use, then Satan and demons are happy to leave you alone, because that's kind of what they're trying to do, right? Just keep the gospel from going forward. Uh, there's an old, uh, old film called Unusual Suspects. It said that the quote from the movie was, the greatest lie the devil ever told was that he doesn't exist. It's true. The greatest lie the devil ever told is that he doesn't exist. And this is the materialist. This is the one they maybe want to enjoy things about Christ, maybe enjoy things, um, but they're not, uh, they're not on mission. They're not seeking to get the gospel out, and therefore life is not very, not very hard. Uh, the other group he mentions, the, the word magician, is, uh, is kind of like the uh, real-life Ghostbusters, right? Life is, there's, there's ghosts and demons flying around everywhere, and they're constantly um, evaluating those and trying to react to those. Um, this is kind of uh, also a theology where there's, they see Satan and demons on par with God, right? They're kind of equal, almost deities, almost like the, you know, the force. There's the good force, the bad force, right? And there's, you know, and the whole thing of Star Wars, it's kind of like that idea. There's this dualist kind of thing going on. There's God versus Satan, and you're kind of hoping that God will win out kind of theology. That actually exists, where people are so terrified of Satan because he's kind of, he's got this ultimate power, and you're hoping that God will protect you or look after you. That's another side of the, of the, uh, the thought. Um, up until, I would say up until about, I would say a personal testimony of this, up until about 10 years ago, um, I, I believed, I went through seminary, I, I had all the verses, I believed Satan and demons existed. Um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't think much about it, to be honest with you. Um, I underestimated, I would say, the spiritual war that I was in. I didn't give it much thought to that. Um, I remember when I, when I moved to, to, to Los Angeles and started planting churches that I had no, other, no choice but to face that reality. Um, and I'll give you a lot of stories as we walk through stuff, and you may think I'm strange and weird, but I'll just give you the realities of what I faced when I was there. But um, then it kind of hit me in the face. It was like, whoa, this is, things became very difficult. Resistance was every single day. Um, even things that were supernatural that happened that, that, um, that I'd never, I would have thought people were lying when they told me before, when they said it, <laughs> I experienced them like, oh, well, okay, this is a, this is a reality. Um, and I think about more, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, the more, uh, the, I, my experience, the more I pushed into getting the gospel out, the more I uh, worked at finding ways to unknown un unbelievers, get into their life, get the gospel in, the more resistance and honestly, demonic attack that I faced in life. And the less I did that, and the more I pulled back, the easier, honestly, life kind of got. And it was just kind of smooth sailing. It was very interesting. I don't know if you've experienced that yourself um, in your life. Again, Satan's happy to leave you alone um, if you're off mission, uh, because that's what he's against.
uh, we have an enemy, all right? So it's not the government. Uh, maybe you think it is. Um, it's not your neighbor. It's not your in-laws. Um, Satan and his demons are our enemy. And we're going to look at a lot of passages that make this reality very clear. We, uh, we have a world system that presses against us and goes against our, our, our worldview. We have our own flesh, uh, Paul will say in Romans, that battles against us every single day. And we have Satan and demons pressing in from the outside. That adds up to be a pretty difficult life, okay? Uh, but I've told you before, we shouldn't expect it to be easy. Um, Jesus said, take up our cross, right, and follow him. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, one of the key passages on the subject. He said, and you were, speaking of before Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you were once walked, following the course of this world. So you were kind of just in the system, in the stream, okay, thinking along with the world, going along with the worldview. And this is following the prince of the power of the air, that's a, a, a title for Satan, the spirit that is now, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a very sobering reality of what it's like to be apart from Christ. And here's the deal. When you come to Christ, you cross enemy lines. Okay? You cross them. You may not realize that when you first came to Christ, but you did. Okay? You went over on the other side, and now uh, instead of fighting against God, is what you were doing before, now you're, on, you're, you're in Christ, but now you've got a war against you, because Satan, as we'll see in a minute, has declared war um, on us. So we've, when you come to Christ, you've awakened to a fight that's outside of you, the world, a fight within you, which is the flesh, and a fight that is upon you, which is Satan and his demons. Okay? And the harder you go after Christ... The more you seek to push against the kingdom of darkness by spreading the gospel, the more you seek to love and to do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with you, God, your God, the harder the enemy is going to push in. And the harder life will get. That's just the way it goes. Okay? Um, matter of fact, if you go to, if you look at, we won't look at it right now, but if you look at Matthew 3 and 4, there's an interesting parallel there um, to, to even the Christian life. In Matthew 3 and 4, if you re remember those passages, uh, Matthew 3 is the baptism of Jesus. And the Father said, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Chapter 4 of Matthew is what? What's chapter 4? The wilderness temptation, right? It's a very interesting kind of parallels even to the Christian life going into those two passages. Uh, you see in one passage, you've got, you've got the spirit. Um, you've got the next passage, you've got a spiritual battle. You've got a voice from heaven. You've got a voice from hell. You've got comfort. You've got conflict. You've got affirmation. Then you've got temptation. You've got strength. You've got weakness. You've got water. You've got desert. It's a very interesting parallel even to our lives. If we're going to be led by the Spirit of God to follow Jesus, then we should expect conflict. We should expect resistance. And if anyone's offering you a Christianity without conflict, a Christianity without resistance, then they are giving you a lie. Because that's not the reality. Um, okay? Question 19. Alright. And I, I bring these questions I bring up may not be questions that you're asking yourself, so just realize I, I ask these questions because all the material I've read, people, these are thoughts that people throw out there, and so I just want to answer them. Um, are the demonic activities in the Bible just ancient misunderstandings of mental illnesses and disorders? Okay. There's a popular thought today that because this basically goes back to the thought that, you know, those, the primitive people, you know, they don't have, they're in a pre-scientific era. They don't understand the things we do about mental illness and other issues. And so therefore all this talk about Satan and demons and all the illnesses and stuff that they cause is really just because they didn't have the data. Right? They didn't have the scientific data to, or medical data to back it up to be able to explain um, what actually was going on. And so while, while demons can have an impact upon people's emotional 
physical and psychological faculties, which we will look at, the Bible's account of demonic activity is accurately portrayed, okay? And how it portrays it and what it says is, is very, very true, okay? Um, the, uh, it's interesting, in our culture today, when people do bad things, when people um, do things like that in our culture, we tend to look at brain chemistry, childhood trauma, larger socioeconomic forces, right, for explanation. There's got to be something out there that's going on that caused these things to happen. Um, the biblical authors are going to say that while, while we are culpable for our sin in all cases, meaning it, we own our own stuff, there's no, Satan's not making us do anything, he's not making us do anything. The reality is, though, that there is, there is evil behind the sin in the world. There is a power moving the stream, okay, that's going on uh, in, our, in our culture. You find throughout Scripture, uh, and especially in the New Testament, you find the effect that demons did have upon people's lives. I mean, look at this, uh, Matthew 12, 22, a demon was a oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. We have uh, Matthew 17, 15, Lord have mercy on my son. He has seizures, he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And as the passage goes on, we find out there's a demon that is, uh, that is uh, working on him. Luke 9.42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Okay. These are, again, many, many examples of these. I'll give you one more. Luke 13.16, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, and Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So there was definitely satanic activity and demonic activity going on in people's health and mental illnesses and all that stuff did. doesn't mean that everything you see is demonic. On the same, t same side, every evil you see, um, also understand there is a power behind that, right? It's interesting, in the New Testament, the writers actually did differentiate between those kind of things. If you look at uh, Matthew 4, 24, his fame, speaking of Jesus, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted by various diseases and pains, and here it is, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. So there is clearly a differentiation between demonic influence and yet other issues going on as well, other, other mental or physical inabilities that aren't necessarily chalked up to demonic activity. So those are definitely separated um, throughout Scripture. Okay? So while not, not all evil is, is uh, directly attributed to Satan in the Bible, um, that's, that's pretty clear. Matter of fact, the Bible, it's interesting when you take the scope of the Bible how much attention it gives to demonic activity, how much attention it gives to personal culpability and responsibility, and things like Jesus would say, out of the mouth flows the issues of the heart. There's a lot more weight given to human culpability than is demonic influence, but we don't want to underestimate that either. Okay? Which brings us to question number 20. Um, are we not the source of all the evil in the world? That's another thought. It's like, well, kind of, we don't need Satan. The, the, the argument goes something like this. We're plenty capable enough of, of bringing about evil in this world without any help at all um, from Satan and demons. And to an extent that is true. But again, we also want to, don't wanna, uh, as Christians, we also want to take all of Scripture and look at it and go, there is um, demonic influence and satanic work going on in our world, unbeknownst, by the way, to most people who are a part of it. Um, the Bible speaks of Satan as a real uh, and personal being. Okay? A personal being, the reason we say personal being is because the passages we'll, we'll look at, he speaks, talks about him lying, talks about his works, talks about how he fights, he desires, he prowls, he has designs and plans, um, he blinds, he deceives, he gets angry. These are all 
personal characteristics. He's a personal being. He's angelic, but he's personal. Jesus himself treats him as a person. Matthew 4, Luke 4, he interacts with him as, as a personal being. And so the point is, evil is personal out in the world. Um, it's too simplistic to think it's just chemicals or it's just us. Right? I'm a firm believer in the doctrine of depravity of man. I fully believe that. At the same time, I'm not willing to admit that every evil that happens in the world is solely of human doing. Um, the Bible seems to be clear there's a lot of demonic influence going on out there in the world. There is an intelligence, there is a being, a mastermind behind all of that, which the Bible describes as Satan. Okay? Um, he's not solely responsible at all, but he is a power player, he's a mover behind the scenes in a lot that we see going on in our world. And so... Uh, when it affirms the, the Bible, when it affirms the existence of, of Satan, um, is saying that if you think that all, all that happened, for example, if you say oh, the Holocaust, Holocaust was just, you know, Hitler, or it was just certain people, you know, those kind of events, you go back and go, no, there was, there's deeper issues, it doesn't remove the culpability of those people in any shape or form, but it does help us understand that there is some supernatural power going on behind those places, so we don't want to be naive to that. It's much more complex. Um, <laughs> Uh, let's see, um, I, uh, one of the other things, um, to understand that reality is that not just, it's not just biblically, but also personally, experientially, right? We understand, we look at, we see, you probably can give stories, even your own life or things that you've experienced that there is something deeper going on in some, sometimes than just this person just doesn't like me, right? Or, uh, this is just happening. There's, a, there's things underneath that. Again, we have an enemy. Um, that interesting enough has declared war on us, uh, and that's the language that the Bible uses. So listen to this, Revelation 12, 17, the dragon, it's a, another name for Satan, we'll get to the names of Satan in a minute, became furious, there's that personal nature, uh, with the woman, it's a symbol in that passage at least, I believe, of uh, the people of God, especially, I think speaking of Israel there, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, those last two descriptions describe you. And if you go back and follow that text, that means that he has declared war. He has gone off to set to make war. He's not passive. He's not just, you know, ignoring it. He's very much engaged and calling it war in this text. Okay? Questions thus far? All right. So where do we get the image of Satan as a creature with horns and a pitchfork? You ever thought about that? But yeah, I mean, if, you, if you've read your Bible at all and gone through it, you get out of it and just look at this topic, and you kind of go like, well, where in the world did that come from? Because that's nowhere in the scripture, right? Um, there's two sources for that that I found, um, interesting enough. One is um, ancient gods many times look like goats, okay? And there was a, uh, a tribute, especially the Philistine gods, and they attributed that to satanic involvement, okay, or at least, uh, as we'll talk about in a minute, all false gods are actually demonically influenced, uh, because there are no other gods. So any other cool gods out there are demonic in its source. And so that was part of it. But also the Middle Age artists were uh, making uh, caricatures of Satan to mock him. That's an inter interesting. So, um, so the way it goes is there's, um, in the Middle Ages, people were very much concerned about demonic and satanic activity. And because they let, read the scriptures as Satan's downfall was his own pride, which we'll look at those passages tonight as well, 
um, because, because pride was his own downfall, they argue that basically if we just mock him, <laughs> if we just mock him enough, he'll get angry and go away. And that was kind of like a, a defense mechanism. So they depicted him with ridiculous stuff, like burnt skin and a pitchfork, you know, and all, all those different writings were there. Actually, those paintings were made to be a mockery of him as a defense. That's how they viewed that. Well, in modern culture, we look back at the Middle, Middle Ages and the artwork, and we go like, oh, those primitive people, they believed in these, you know, the, you know that, that Satan was, you know, this burnt skin with a barbed tail and pitchfork and horns on his head. And they laugh at it. And they go, you don't understand. That was the point. <laughs> That's exactly what they were doing. They were trying to make um, make a mockery of him in order to protect themselves. That's how they viewed that. So that's an interesting kind of little background on where that came from, if you ever asked or ever wondered that question. Okay? All right. Take a little more here. So question 22. What is Satan? All right. So let's, let's camp on this one for a little bit. First of all, Satan is not a competing god, okay? He's a fallen angel who opposes God and his mission to seek and save the lost, okay? He is not a competing god, but rather a fallen angel who opposes God and his mission to seek and save the lost, okay? And that's a, that first part is super important if you understand. He's not God. He's not a god, all right? There's only one god. And again, that's an important, important passage to understand. It's in Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 6. It says this. It says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Just camp on that for a second. Just think about that. There, there is no other God. And that, I mean, not even to like a, a, a 1%. <laughs> There's 0% other God, Right? Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may, may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I think he's repeating himself a reason, right? I mean, he's saying that. He's not cold. He's not, not, not shuddering here. So this is, this is what he's saying. There is no other God besides me. That means in, in um, let me put that on the screen, but the, what a, a, a theology of this is called um, dualism. D-U, it's not a V, sorry, D-U-A-L-I-S-M. Uh, dualism is kind of a theological kind of view, a word that people put to, you can get the idea, right, dual. There's two competing um, gods. There's, there's God of the Bible, God of Israel, and there's Satan, right? And, and then Satan has his angels, and God has you know, his angels, and they're all kind of on equal par, and they're kind of fighting it out. And that's the chaos that's in our world today. There's kind of this competing God thing. Uh, but as we read the scriptures, we find out that Satan is, is not autonomous, okay, and he's not sovereign. He's powerful, okay, but he's not omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Um, he's intelligent, but he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's active, very active, but he's not omnipresent. Think about that. He's not omnipresent. So the odds of you being attacked or, or any one of us probably being attacked or tempted by Satan himself is probably rare. There's one being in one place at one time. Uh, I don't mean that to sound discouraging to you at all. I don't know if that is discouraging. But he's probably got bigger fish to fry in the world, right? Um, no doubt demonic activity, and we'll talk about them later. But Satan is, think about it, he's not omnipresent, so he's not in multiple places at once. He's in one place. He's one being. He can't be at all places at one time. He doesn't have that attribute. That's not part of his... His, uh, his, his um, character or his makeup. So it means he's no, no match for God. 
And as we'll look at later, and this may make you a little uncomfortable to say this, but it's the reality, at the end of the day, he's God Satan. And what I mean by that is that he's on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. He's not, he's not an independent being in a way that he can just do whatever he wants and God has to kind of make up and figure it out and how to, re, how to, re, how to respond. Does that make sense? Um, you find in passages like Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom, or as, as some translations say, his sovereignty rules over all. And so we know, as the passages go through, we find that Satan is a created angel. He was a created being. Um, and he was actually created good, as God said in Genesis, everything he made was very good. good right? uh, we also find re references to Satan as an angel um, in many passages. This is one of them. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, No wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Describing even part of his quality, kind of disguises himself instead of an angel of darkness, an angel of light. But there, there he is, he's an angel. And we saw this in our study on angels as well, but uh, Colossians 1.16, the reference here to thrones, dominions, and rulers, and authorities are, are angelic terms. And so everything, this is speaking of Jesus, by him all things were created. They were all created through him and for him. All angelic creatures and beings, be they... Uh, be they holy elect angels we looked at before, or be they fallen um, evil um, angels on the other side. Um, we also know from Scripture about Satan that he is he is a leader. Okay? He's a leader over demons, or which are other fallen angels. We'll look at later. Um, they're known their their names are known as powers or princes or principalities or spiritual forces or cosmic powers or rulers or spirits. These are all names, and we'll get don't worry about writing those down. We're going to get to those. So he together. Um, with the demons are well trained, right, through centuries of study of mankind, so they can be very intelligent creatures. Um, they're also well versed in scripture, sometimes maybe better theologians than we are. Uh, Luke 8.28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out, this is a demon, and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. I mean, they better theology than all the religious leaders and everyone else around at the time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the son of the most high God. And then the authority to go, don't torment me, right? In other passages, they'll say, "Can you can, don't torment me yet. <laughs> you know, it's like, I know it's coming. Um, so they very much acknowledge that. Uh, James 2.19 says, you believe in that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Or they even have an emotional response to it. They're afraid. Of him, so they have a good theology on that side. Okay. All right. Question twenty-three. All right. What are the names for Satan in the Bible? Um, now, th these are important because the name, right, tells you something about someone. At least in biblical times, especially today, you maybe got named a certain name by your parents because they liked a, a TV show or maybe somebody from church history, or I don't know. Sometimes you have more noble names than others, right? Um, you're like, it was the dog. The dog's name was my name. Um, but uh, it may happen sometimes, all right? Um, but names are, names are important, um, especially when it comes to villains or bad guys. Uh, if you imagine, um, if uh, one of my favorite series, if uh, Lord of the Rings, if Sauron was named Frank, um, or if the Wicked Witch of the West was named Barb, or Darth Vader, Darth Vader was named Bob. Like, it has a whole different look to it, right? This is Bob. I am your father, Bob. Right? That would be weird. They, they mean something, right? The names even go along with the character. 
See, the names in the Bible of Satan describe characteristics of him or qualities about him. And that's why those names are important. And so we'll kind of list off. I've got a bunch there listed in front of you. One, uh, the first one we'll look at is Satan. That's the one I, I use predominantly. Um, it is the one mostly used in Scripture. Um, it is, um, it is, the word means adversary um, or accuser. Uh, you could even call it a prosecuting attorney. So if you're ever in court and you have a lawyer prosecuting you, you can call him Satan. All right? That's a, sorry if you're a prosecuting attorney. You're like, man, um, you're Satan. All right, so um, it's used 52 times in Scripture. Um, a good picture of this, this name, if you go to the book of Job or if you go to the book of Zechariah, they have good images of, um, of almost like a courtroom scene taking place in the, in the presence of God. And there's, in Job, you know, there's Satan and demons there. And then in Zechariah, there's Satan accusing uh, Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3. And there's like a courtroom almost scene. That's, that's the idea when we talk about Satan. So here's Zechariah 3, 1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So there's the description to accuse him is exactly what Satan's name means. Another one that's real popular, that actually is not in scripture, um, officially, depends on translation, we'll talk about that as well, is uh, Lucifer. Uh, this is taken, the word Lucifer is taken from Isaiah 14, um, actually here, Isaiah 14, 12. And, it, and the passage in the ESV translation says, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. So O day star, that day star description, the way it worked is that in in 400 A.D., the Bible was first translated out of the Greek language, its original language. In 400, it was translated to a different language. Anyone knows what, knows what that language was? What was the next language after Greek was translated? 400. It's called the Vulgate. What was it? Latin. Latin. There you go. So the Latin Vulgate. It was translated. And when the Latin Vulgate translated this, this phrase out here, the day star, they transliterated the Hebrew word out, Lucifer, right? And they put that in there. And when the King James was written in the 1600s, they adopted that name, and that's why the popularity of the word Lucifer has become popular, because that's what's in the King James Version as well, which is taken from the Latin from 400. Okay, so that's just give you an idea. That's where it comes from. Because if you just look at the back of your Bible, probably, and unless you have a King James, if you look at the back of your Bible and look at the index and try to find Lucifer, you're like, where is that? I know people talk about him called Lucifer all the time. That's, uh, that's where it comes from. And so the name, though, Lucifer or Daystar, um, indicates a uh, once glorious place he had in the presence of God, and now a disgrace he has fallen from heaven, as we'll talk about later. Uh, C, devil. Uh, this name is used uh, 35 times, so it's the second most popular description of Satan in the Bible. Uh, it literally means slanderer. It indicates that Satan's aim is to defame God, to drag his name through the dirt in some form or fashion. He's a constant source of false and malicious reports uh, throughout Scripture. So one of the passages, Luke 4.13, we see him living up to his name, the devil here. Luke 4.13, the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. So there we find him in Luke 4, slandering God. Right, so he was uh, telling them that this is, you know, God's lying to you. Like you can short circuit, short circuit the process of going to the cross. I'll give you the kingdom now. Right, he's just slandering God and all the things that he is saying there. Uh, D, tempter. Um, we see this in First Thessalonians three five. It says, "For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that someone, uh, some somehow the tempter." 
uh, really should be capitalized, uh, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That's a reference to, to Satan. Uh, Satan loves to entice people. Uh, again, famously, he lured Jesus uh, and tried to tempt him as well. So this references his attempts to constantly attack or interfere with the word of God um, or with God's mission, always trying to get in there and try to find a way of tempting people to turn away. Okay. Another title in scripture given is actually one reference to this. Uh, Belial, uh, that's how you pronounce that, is from 2 Corinthians 6.15, and it says, what accord is Christ with Belial, okay, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That's, it's really a de- more of a derogatory name. The word literally means worthlessness. <laughs> that shows you what, what Paul thought of him, right? Um, he just called him worthlessness. That's what he called him uh, and attributed that to him. Another one, uh, letter F there, ruler of this world, is the idea that God, not that God has made Satan the prince, right, has crowned him in some way, but really human beings have made him such uh, through their really submission to his rule and submission to sin, which he's, he's working through. And so he exercises uh, spiritual control over his human subjects. That doesn't mean that everybody who's an unbeliever is a Satanist, or everyone who's an unbeliever is head spinning around and, you know, and all the things that come up in modern culture. But it does mean they're under that oppression, with most of the time unbeknownst to them. They don't even realize it or even own up to it. They don't even believe in Satan, which again, one of his greatest lies he ever told is it doesn't exist. Ephesians 2, 2 says, In which you once walked, again, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and he's working, it says here, in the sons of disobedience. That would be an unbeliever. John 12, verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And says Jesus' description of him in that passage. John 14, 30, I will no longer talk with you, uh, talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. John 14, 30. And then one, one final verse on this, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So every find Satan's activity even in blinding unbelievers from seeing the worth and value of Christ. Uh, letter G, Prince of Demons. This is that, that Prince of the Power of the Air, Ephesians passage. Uh, it's a description of kind of his rule over Demons, he clearly has reign over them. You look in, there's several passages of scripture that will call demons his demons, is the description. Um, so you see um, here in Matthew 9.34, the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. There's a description of, of Satan as a prince of demons. He's a ruler over them. This implies, by the way, we'll look at later, structure and order. We saw that with angels, that there's structure and order. There's the same happens within the demonic realm as well. Here in Matthew 25, 41, it says, uh, Depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil. And here it is, his angels. Right. So there's some sense of authority, rule, control, um, order that he gives in that realm. Letter H, Beelzebul. This is, a, the ti- this is another derogatory term. Uh, it literally, the, the name literally means Lord of Dung. That's what it means. Um, God of Filth. That's kind of what basically the translation is. Um, it's also been translated Lord of the Dwelling or Dwelling of Demons. It was a title given to uh, pagan gods of the Philistines, sometimes called Lord of the Flies. If you ever read that book, 
a long time ago. That's where that title is, where it comes from. Um, it was uh, later, the, the titles of the pagan gods given this were brought over into Judaism as a name for Satan. And again, it, ex it echoes this kind of control or rule over the demonic um, realm. It says here, Pharisees heard it, they said it's only by Beelzebul, right? That's, what that, that's how they'd adopted that God of the Philistines title and gave it to Satan, and that's, when they called, that's what they called Jesus. So they called Jesus Satan, but they also called him a God of the Philistines. Can you imagine how, if you know anything about the Bible, about the Philistines, that was pretty low, pretty low blow at that point, right? The prince of demons. Uh, th that's this, this man casts out demons. Uh, letter um, I there, adversary, the adversary. Uh, this name points to his opposition uh, to God and his gospel and his people. Uh, the image that we find, 1 Peter 5, 8, is that uh, he is an adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour him. So the image of a roaring lion shows us that he uses, in this passage at least, if you go to the next verse in First Peter, he uses persecution as his roar. Um, if he can uh, somehow intimidate believers uh, to shrink back from the, from the prospect of suffering, that, that's his goal, right? That's what he's doing as an adversary. He's trying to keep them back, keep them away from the front lines, as it were, keep them back from being involved in God's kingdom and advancing his gospel. Uh, letter J, this is a title that Jesus gave, um, murderer. He said, uh, speaking, by the way, these were fighting words. Um, he's speaking to the religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. So they called him a Philistine god and Satan, and he turned around and called them, your you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now this echoes back to what passage? You think? <clears throat> Genesis 4. Cain and Abel, right? Genesis 4. So this echoes back to murder from the beginning, all the way back to, to Cain and Abel. The next title we see, Liar, in the same passage, echoes back to Genesis 3 there. So we find he does, speaking of Satan, does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That goes back to Genesis now. 3. So the, both the titles that Jesus is giving to Satan here echo back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Um, again, what we'll find, and if you take Genesis 3 apart, you find almost like a template of satanic uh, or demonic influence or temptation is really outlined pretty well in Genesis 3. Uh, letter L, evil, evil one. Um, Satan is the personification of wickedness, the power behind it. Um, this is, by the way, why uh, in Matthew 6, the end of Jesus' instructive prayer to his disciples is, uh, is to pray, right? And he talked about our Father in heaven kingdom coming will be lead done, and then the very last one, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. evil. If you look at the language, it's actually a definite article from the evil, and so it's most likely a prayer and a description of Satan, actually, as the end of that. Uh, we find other, other passages, too. Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Letter M there, the enemy. Uh, this name tells us uh, that battle lines have been drawn. A war is taking place between God and his children, between Satan, uh, between God and his children, and between Satan and his demons attacking them. We find that in Matthew 13, 39. The enemy who sowed them the, is the devil. Okay, it's the devil, the enemy. Uh, letter N, uh, the dragon. This name implies a terrifying, kind of destructive beast. It's an image of intimidation, 
kind of going back to that lion picture as well, lion. Uh, the great dragon was thrown down, Revelation 12, 9. In that same passage, Revelation 12, 9, we find the next description, the serpent. Uh, this is an allusion back to Genesis 3, right? And it's Scripture's way of reminding us of the original temptation, to constantly not remember what took place there, because that, again, is a template that seems to take place over and over and over again. Um, same passage, Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. Okay. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven three, he said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. Letter P, uh, the deceiver. Uh, this tells us one of his primary devices is imposing, in opposing God and his plans, constantly deceiving, constantly making counterfeits to God's truth. Again, that same passage, Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Uh, a few more. Cue the accuser. Satan delights in pressing charges against God's people. We find that in Job and Zechariah, um, as well as, again, Revelation 12.10. Uh, the salvation, power, and kingdom of our God, and authority of his Christ have come. But the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. Constantly accusing, constantly bringing that up. Letter R, the destroyer. Um, this is the last one. This comes from Revelation 9.11. You have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon. Uh, the, both of those translations, one in Greek, one in Hebrew, both mean destroyer is the word. Um, and again, Satan creates nothing, but he tries to destroy everything God makes. And okay, that's kind of what that's referencing. All right, any questions on the names? All right. This is always a fun one. What was Satan's origin and fall? All right, what was his origin and what was his fall? Well, one thing we can say about him is that Satan never set out to be Satan. He set out to be God. He got banished from God's presence. He never set out to be God's opposer. He wanted to be God. Okay, that he got cast out, thus he became God's. Um, opposer in that way. So it's interesting. You pick up your Bible. If, if you imagine never reading it before, you just start reading it. And you get to about page three or four, depending on how large your print size is, <laughs> how big the letters are you have there, um, or how big your Bible is. You come across a place where you see a serpent. And then you see this serpent doing something strange, right? He's, he's talking. And Eve is just dialoguing with this serpent. So it, it has a strange beginning. The only thing we get in that passage is that this, was, this creature was more craftier Right, such a description there. He's more craftier than the other uh, creatures that God had made. And we find out later that this, this becomes, as we looked at already, that ancient serpent and those passages refer back to explaining that passage that, hey, that was Satan actually that was there. Um, and, uh, and so he shows up abruptly in Genesis 3, and then his presence is just assumed throughout the rest of Scripture. He's always there in the background, operating, working in some capacity. So for his origin and where he came from, Genesis 3 is not going to help just tell us where he came from. It just, he just shows up. But other passages uh, seem to give us some indication of that. And so what we're going to try to do is piece four different passages together to kind of get a good picture of uh, what was going on. And there's much debate on these passages. I'll give you my perspective of them. People differ on them. You can totally differ um, on them as well. Uh, the first one we'll look at is uh, Luke 10, 17 through 18. This is Jesus speaking. 
And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they'd gone out on mission, you know, and they'd cast out demons. They'd come back all excited, uh, presumably maybe prideful a little bit here, like, hey, demons even listen to us. And then Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Can you imagine that statement? Oh, I guess our little, our little uh, demons being cast out isn't very important, is it? <laughs> I saw, present tense, Satan fall like lightning. So he, he's referencing some sort of past event of Satan. These, all these passages have the same language, fall. There's some sort of fall that took place um, of him. And so we find here not only a stunning affirmation of Christ's deity and Christ's eternality, we learn that Satan at some point had fallen um, swiftly and destructively, we're assuming by that phrase, like lightning, and uh, away from God's presence, which says from heaven. So somehow he fell quickly, destructively, from the presence of God. So we at least get that part. We don't get a timing, but we at least get some kind of description from Jesus of, uh, of what took place. Another passage is in Revelation 12, uh, 7 through 9. It says here, Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels, this is Michael we've looked at in, our, in, in the study of angels, <coughs> fighting against the dragon. This is, this is similar to Daniel's accounts and things we read in Daniel. And the dragon and his angels, the dragon, the reference to Satan, fought back. But, it says, he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. So here we got fall, we had before, now we have thrown down. That ancient serpent, who was called the devil, and Satan, the seer of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So now we're getting a little bit fuller picture of something that went on in the past. So speaking, this word thrown down is a very violent term, actually. It's to be thrown down with extreme force. It's, uh, it's used in combat or what have been gladiatorial games and fighting and throwing an opponent down. So it's a very violent, you know, strong um, uh, verb there. So here we, here we learn a little more about Satan. We also learn this passage, different from the other one in Luke, is that there were some angels involved now, more than him, all right? So there was other angels involved, and they were also violently thrown out of God's presence. And so this tells us that along with his demons, uh, there was this idea that Satan and his, the, his angels, because there's a description there, were once holy angels. That's what we're trying to implying from the text, at least we can pull from the text. There was a time when they were there, and we see the parallel again in Genesis 3 with that ancient serpent. So we, we're getting a little bit more pieces of the puzzle put together. Now, two other passages in the Old Testament that these are the ones that are up for debate, that people will argue that this is Satan or it's not. Um, I will argue that they are. Uh, one is Revel I'm sorry, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, it says this, um, this is uh, this one along with the Ezekiel 28 one we'll look at in a second, are almost like they're read like uh, funeral dirges. All right? They are um, sarcastic laments of kings who got proud and were brought low for opposing God and his people. But I believe that in the midst of that context, there is, there is indication of some, some qualities there that I think are beyond earthly. Okay? So there it is. How you, how you have fallen, there's our language again, from heaven, almost parallel, by the way, to Jesus' statements. O day star, son of dawn, how you were cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. That's a reference to angels. I will set my throne on high. I will set, sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches 
of the pit. So it seems to be that there is implied behind this is some kind of satanic source of evil behind this. The language seems to be compatible with the other two passages we just looked at that seem to be in pretty similar to those. Um, I, again, matter of fact, Jesus' statements um, parallels, it parallels his commentary in Luke that he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's very similar language to what you see here in the first verse. Also, some of the, another one of the key characteristics of this passage is the repetitive I will statements. You see those five different times? That kind of bold, kind of proud arrogance um, that's there. Uh, we find, if we're putting this together with, with Satan, that, that we find he was very prideful. That some of the source of why he got thrown out was that he wanted to be God, okay, in some capacity. And this tells us, again, why he was removed from his presence. So we're starting to put some pieces together, and there's one more. Uh, we can look at uh, Ezekiel 28, um, 12 through 17. I had to put this on two slides because it's kind of long. Um, it says, Son of man, rise, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, I'm not sure what that is, and crafted in gold, it's a funny name, um, imagine if that was on your ring, ladies, you know, oh, carbuncle, see, you like it, don't be jealous of the carbuncle ring, it's not what a carbuncle is. I know, I'm just, medical term is not, is it, I have no idea what the word is, some kind of stone in this passage, at least, uh, crafted in gold were, were your settings and your engravings, on the day that you were created, they were prepared, you were an anointed guardian cherub, goes on to say, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you um, as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So here, this language. Oh, it sure is, isn't it? I am sorry. You're right. I messed that one up. Thank you. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. So this passage, I believe, is even a stronger reference. Uh, the other one maybe be a little more debated of whether it's, it has some satanic origin, explains some of his origin. This one seems pretty clear. There are qualities and characteristics here that are definitely not human. Um, you've got things like it speaks of perfection, which is not of any human being, of being blameless, speaks of being in the Garden of Eden, that's kind of hard for an earthly king to have been there, uh, speaks of being created, uh, being a guardian cherub, being on the holy mountain of God, these are all descriptions that I just find it honestly impossible to have an earthly king be a description of. Um, and while these, some descriptions are of the king of Tyre, as the passage goes on, there's a deeper description of a sinister mastermind who motivates him, um, who we believe to be an unseen tyrant of Satan. And so we learn from the passage that he was created. At one time he was holy, and also, interesting enough, a beautiful cherub. If you remember cherub and what their role was in the angelic, their goal, this is interesting, their whole goal was to guard the glory of God. Remember, that's what they, they were put back even in the Garden of Eden there at that point. But if you look at them, God is said to ride on the cherub. They're always almost, we talked about last time in our angelic um, class that we talked about uh, how they flink almost. Like on the left and the right, whenever God moves out, like they are 
They are right there guarding and protecting his glory. Interesting enough that that's what Satan was. He was as close as you could get of any angelic being to the presence of God. And that's what we find in this passage. Again, a lot of parallels seem to come together. And so he seemed to not just want to guard God's glory. At some point or another, it says it was found in him um, that he wanted, he, wanted, he wanted what God had. He wanted what God was receiving. He wanted that glory for himself. And so we find from this point on, we find that he pops up in Genesis 3. Um, he is found there um, somewhere between Genesis 1 and 3 is when this happened. It has to have happened somewhere in that time because after Genesis 1, everything was good. Genesis 3, he's there. So somewhere in that time period um, is when he, he would have, this would have taken place. Okay? And then, uh, of course, in Genesis 3, he's then told uh, his future. He's told what will happen. Again, he will bruise, you know, Jesus' um, heel, but Jesus will crush his head. He will be victorious over him. Any questions on that? Those are usually interesting passages. Lots of things, the scriptures in there. Okay. All right. Uh, question number 25. What is Satan's mission? It's an important question, right? What is his mission? What is he after? Okay. Satan's mission, threefold. To oppose God by trying to hinder the gospel going forward through God's people. So God's person, God's gospel, God's people. Those are the things he's opposing. Those are the things he's going against. God himself, his gospel, and his people. And ultimately, again, it's trying to hinder the gospel going forward through God's people, which is God's mechanism for getting the gospel out. We find a, um, a good summary of his mission, or at least uh, some points of this. Revelation 13, verse 6, says it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So here we find God's people, we find God's name, and part of his goal to do that. So let's look at a few of these. So opposes God. Okay, well, we, we find Satan... As we already looked at already, opposing God before human beings are ever on the scene. Okay, this is what our that Revelation twelve seven through nine passage is going to tell us. There was there was a war, or fighting that took place. Uh, so he was already opposing God before we ever even came on the scene. Okay, something going on there. We also find him again in Genesis three popping up that he as soon as humanity is uh, created, Adam and Eve are there. We find in Genesis 3 that he shows up there, right, immediately. I mean, it's like every place that he could be, he is there to oppose God at every front. Genesis 3 says the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which is a lie, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. But God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And then as the story of the Bible develops, we find Satan opposing God by trying to hinder um, God's story, God's gospel moving forward, even to the people of Israel. We find him constantly opposing them as a nation, which was God's chosen instrument throughout the Old Testament to get that forward. And the, and the best image of that is actually, ironically, from Revelation. It's an interesting passage, sometimes hard to interpret, but uh, the point, I think, is speaking of Satan's attack against Israel. Revelation 12, 13 through 17, 
The dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth. He pursued the woman, which I believe in that text is the nation of Israel, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for times, times, and a, time, and a half a time. The serpent poured water out uh, like, a, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. The earth came to the help of the... Well, it, was, it panicked on me. What just happened? Let me get that back up again. It turned off. Yeah, it's the prince of the power of the air. Look at that. Posing me. Come on now. All right, let's see if that comes up. Oh, there we go. Play. There we are. Okay. And uh, he didn't like that very much. The earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out of its mouth. The dragon became furious, but the went off to make war. The rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there he's there constantly. You can, you can read. It's interesting to read. If, you're ever, if you do a, your yearly Bible reading, if you kind of go through the Bible in a year, always like just picking up some new theme. And it's interesting to follow this theme. And you just find behind all the things that are going on in the Old Testament with opposing armies and nations and corruption within Israel, that all of that is, is satanic in its origin, right? There's all, Satan's very much behind the scenes. Many times he's even referenced um, as being a part of that. Uh, but he's, he's always involved in those places. Then we find as the church uh, moves forward, right as Jesus was, even before the church, even as Jesus was born, or immediately, right, Herod is stirred up to go kill every child, Right? It's two and under there. And then we find right when Jesus begins his public ministry, immediately after the Father says, you know, my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased, boom, he immediately is right in his face uh, to tempt him there in Matthew, Luke, and 4. And as the church develops, we find him, Satan throwing out counterfeits. Um, the New Testament, by the way, has a lot, and we'll look at this next week, has a lot to say about Satan building counterfeit, counterfeits. Um, it's one of the unfortunate things about many in the church. They don't understand just how dangerous um, false doctrines and false beliefs and things out there. They're just they're just because it says Christian by an author doesn't mean it's from God. Okay, there's a lot of counterfeits, and this is one of them. Uh, the passages talk about it. Second Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. And Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And by the time you get all the way to the end of the end of the Bible, and you get a, a 2 Thessalonians 2 describing the time of the tribulation, we find Satan opposing God by energizing the Antichrist. Okay, his ultimate counterfeit. It's really his ultimate counterfeit he comes up with. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2:9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, right? That's his ultimate counterfeit that he'll create. He's got many of them now. You have one coming up then. Okay, then we see he opposes the gospel. He knows, as, as Jesus made clear in, uh, in John chapter 4, that God is seeking after worshipers, right? That's what he's doing. The Father is seeking worshipers. And uh, Satan is trying to oppose that on every level. Because remember, going back to those passages... That's what he was jealous of anyway, of the glory being given to God that he wanted. And so his mission is to kind of try to hinder that, and if at all possible, redirect that even to himself. We find uh, his activity immediately in Scripture with the unbeliever. We find in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that he has blinded them 
um, again, uh, blinded them to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. That language is basically the idea is he's, he's blinded them from seeing the value, the worth, um, the glory of Christ. And make him seem like he's not that valuable, not really worth anything. That's his mission. Uh, we find him trying to squash whatever truth of the gospel gets put out there. Jesus gave this illustration or this parable in Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, right? So they hear the gospel and they're like, i got so many questions, I don't know. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So there he is, constantly active, not only blinding them, but then whatever, when there's just a little bit of a nudge or a little bit of a, an interest, a question, inquisitive heart, he comes by and snatches it, right, and takes even that away. Um, we, uh, if he can't snatch the seed of the gospel away, again, he will just place up false, even false believers strategically to try to confuse the gospel. We find this in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So here have this even unbelievers in the mix of the church, as it were, that are there as counterfeits even, um, is what he's describing. And then right when the gospel started to move out in the book of Acts, um, it started moving. We find right at the very beginning, we'll look at this next week, but Acts 5, right? Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, we find Satan behind trying to, right, the church has started, right? It's trying to see the Jerusalem church even implode on itself. And then when the gospel moves out of Jerusalem, and the first church it moves out uh, towards Cyprus and begins to go out into Antioch, we find uh, Acts 13, uh, 8 through 10, says, um, Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It's very fine, one being raised up by Satan to oppose and to deter and to get the gospel from going forward as it was going now to the ends of the earth. It was starting to move out. And Acts 13 starts the gospel movement outside of Jerusalem and Samaria, and now it's going to the ends of the earth. And immediately he's there to stop it. And again, as the epistles will, will teach us, uh, this, it says here in 1 Timothy 4.1, Later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to the deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, we're not to, to believe that what he's saying is that they, well, they were Christians and now they're Satanists, right? That's not the, the point. The point is that they, they were deceived, devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Again, it doesn't mean it's unbeknownst to them in many ways that they depart and walk away uh, from the faith. And so some of the, we can imagine in these, kind of taking all these passages together, you can imagine some of the schemes of, uh, of Satan and demons uh, to prevent the gospel from bearing fruit. Everything from interruptions when the gospel is presented, emergencies, sudden reminders of things forgotten, intrusions, suspicion of the messengers, right? Something's wrong with them. Maybe they're part of a cult. Maybe they're, they have ulterior motives on why they're doing this. Tipping unbelievers to think of the hypocrisy of believers or so-called believers. That's always a popular one. Get them hung up on questions uh, that they, they can't get answers for. Feelings of self-confidence, that life isn't that bad, I don't need a savior. Or on the other side, feeling of demoralizing of hopelessness of like, well, God can't save me, I'm too far gone. Right? These are all, of the many, tactics that he would uh, approach and go after believers. 
I had, um, I think I've shared this story before in a sermon. I don't know if I have or not. But um, I had that experience, and, and again, one of the, it's not like this happens all the time, so I'm not trying to give you stories of like, hey, I'm always like battling demons. That's not what I'm saying. But I had one with my dad, who was, um, was an unbeliever. He died as an unbeliever about 10 years ago. And I remember being in his house, being in his basement. And as I went in this basement, and, I'm, and I was constantly talking to my dad about the gospel all the time. And he was down there with him, and it was his wife, and his completely drunk and wasted friend who was there, who wasn't even speaking clearly. So it was the three of them. That was my audience, you know. And um, my dad was interested. Like, he was asking constantly questions, working through this. The drug guy kept, like, spitting out comments like crazy. Like, I had to do the whole Paul thing and stand up and tell him. I just I literally told him, you just shut up. <laughs> and he'd stop, he'd stop talking. Um, and so my dad, we're talking. All of a sudden, the phone's ring. You know, this guy, I mean, if you've ever been in these situations, phone's ring in. You're just like, what is going on? Every second I say anything, something's going on. Something's being dropped upstairs. Something's happening. And I always remember this because it was one of those that, like, sent chills up your spine. You're like, oh, my words. Looked over. My dad got so fed up with the phone. He reached, went over to the, it was the, you know, in the, not a cell phone, but the old, like, phone in the wall thing, right? So he went over there. I don't have one of those anymore. Um, went over there, and he ripped it out of the wall, socket and everything, and just threw it on the ground because he was just mad. It kept ringing. And so I don't know why they keep calling me, you know. So he sat down. He's like, continue on, Chris. Tell me. So I'm going through the gospel, and I kid you not that the phone rang again, and it was not attached to the wall. And so it started ringing. And again, this doesn't happen to me all the time. This is like a rare, rare, rare occasion, okay? And see, it went off again. Um, <laughs> um, so, but it did. I mean, it started ringing on the floor. And my dad, like, you know, he, he gets pale as a ghost. He looks at me because he knows what he did. And he knows what's going on. And, you know, it's like, Dad, do you not see what's happening? There's clearly someone doesn't want you to hear what I'm trying to tell you, right? So, I mean, these kind of things, that may not be, again, a normal thing that happens, but Satan, even, not, not maybe not in the most obvious ways like that, but in the subtle ways, is always trying to distract and deter people from hearing the gospel and getting that, getting that out. Amen. All right, let me try this again. Keep kicking me out. Does Satan actually, can he get vocal then, so people could hear? Can he? Yes. Yes, I believe so. And I think the New Testament makes that clear. Now, some argue that the New Testament experiences of um, satanic things like that were unique to Jesus' time, right? Uh, sometimes that, that is argued. Um, but yeah, I've had, I mean, I was in, and I wasn't a part of this one, but a, a very reputable source. I mean, John MacArthur, I was a pastor there at the church, if you know John MacArthur, is a pretty reputable guy. He usually go out telling lies a lot, I don't think. And so, um, so he was saying in one of our staff meetings, like he had a situation where he was in a, a room and there was this lady and uh, it was him and it was three other like elders at the church and they were in there and they were, you know, basically she was really struggling. She was not a believer. She became kind of violent at that point. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, he wasn't in the room yet actually. It was the three of them and they were trying to hold her down. Like she was throwing chairs and just kind of going crazy. And this, they were way bigger than this girl and they couldn't physically hold her down. And John said, um, he walked in, because he heard, you could hear the room next door, you know, the, the things hitting the wall. And so he comes in and sees these guys trying to hold this woman down. And she looks over at him and goes, I know you, you know, John MacArthur, whatever. Like, I know who you are. Get out of here. You know, kind of thing. It was like, it was a different voice. Like, it wasn't her voice. Um, and so that was his one experience. I know he's had with that uh, that just been shared in our staff meeting. So again, that's not normal. It's a normal activity. Satan is very much wanting to stay subtle and stay quiet and stay unbeknownst, you know, and keep people blinded. 
But there are times where uh, I think he can make himself known that way. Um, all right, poses God's people. Um, so Satan is, a, is, again, we've seen a fallen angel. His goal is to thwart the mission of Jesus. And this is important to understand when, I, when he says opposes God's people. When following, I talked about opposing the gospel. So understand that Satan is not, he's not just like trying to make you depressed or make you discontent or factious or entice you to sin as an end in and of itself. Does that make sense? He's not just trying to make you miserable. He's trying to keep the gospel going forward and making you miserable in whatever way that works for you to get you off of mission, get you off of getting the gospel out, then that's what he'll do. Does that make sense? So he's not just after to just make life miserable for you. Um, Lewis, in his book on, uh, um, that I have you reading screw tape letters, he said the, um, this is the demons speaking to one another, kind of in his story, the immediate fear and suffering of the humans is a legitimate and pleasing refreshment for our myriads of toiling workers, right? So we enjoy that, they said. But, what permanent good does it do us unless we make use of it for bringing souls to our father below, speaking of Satan? Okay? That's true. It's like, what use is it? And at the ultimate end of the day, that's not the goal. It's just to make you miserable or make you hurt or make you doubt or anything. It's to find a way to get you off, you know, get you on the bench, right? Get you out of the game in some capacity <laughs> is the goal. And this may happen by um, heaping guilt on believers so that they won't spread the gospel, right? Uh, keep them busy with everything else in life to keep that from happening. Try to discredit their lives uh, so people won't listen to what they have to say. And these are all kind of tactics that he'll use to get that to happen. Again, we find that right at the beginning of the church, Acts 5.3. Peter said to Ananias, uh, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And it, this is a very subtle, you know the story, a very subtle lie. Right? They sold some land. They gave some money to the church. You'd be like, whoa, that's pretty awesome. Congratulations. Peter saw through that and realized that they sold so much, they said they gave so much, and they were actually lying about that just to make themselves basically look better than what they gave. And that was very subtle, but again, Peter's going right after it because that's exactly what Satan was doing. He was trying to discredit, disrupt Right, very subtly, and that's how he does it, very subtly through even the formation of the early church. We find him in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, trying to ruin marriages. Right, in this, this context, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, says, Do not deprive one another, and speaking of marriage, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, this is sex, sex is the, the topic, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we find Satan involved in that capacity, trying to find a way to get in, um, and break the marriage up. Why? Because you break the marriage up in some capacity, you, you then break the church up. It's the building block, right? It happens, and it, it all falls apart. Um, he tries to divide churches through bitterness and lack of forgiveness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 10-11, the context is a guy who has repented, and Paul has asked him to, to, to welcome him back. Uh, he went through the church discipline process, he repented, came back, and the church was like basically going, no, we don't want you. And Paul writes back, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake, uh, for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So that context is like Paul's admonishing them to, to welcome him. Welcome him back. Don't, don't, don't kick him out. Welcome him in. And there we find Satan involved in that process. Um, he tries to hinder uh, ministry work, be it pastors, be it missionaries, from getting the gospel out. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says, I wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. And Paul understood there was 
demonic influence to keep him from visiting the churches to shepherd them, to care for him, the, uh, both as pastor and missionary. We find that in our culture, um, disrupt travel plans, works on the minds of state officials, delay and deny issuing visas, inflict illnesses, provokes military conflict in nations. I mean, all kinds of stuff going on to keep the gospel from getting out there and keep it from getting going forward. Finally, if he can't get to him from the outside, he'll try to attack from the, out, from the, uh, from the inside, he'll attack from the outside. Uh, Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. That you may be tested in ten days, you will be you will have tribulation, be faithful unto death. And so there's this image of saying, if you can't break it apart from the inside, discredit the church and its gospel from the inside, well, just go at them from the outside and find a way to break it apart in some capacity. Because again, the church is God's agent for getting the gospel out, and so He's always trying to break that up, be it, be it through false teachers, be it through conflict and inner turmoil, be it through disunity and you know lack of forgiveness, all of those things are all there to get the gospel from going forward, to keep it from going forward. All right, question 26. Why does Satan continue to fight, though it's clear he'll lose? You ever thought about that question? Like, what in the world? Does this guy know he's going to lose? Can he read, right? Um, kind of thought. Um, his animosity towards God and his pride, believe, have blinded him from his obvious defeat. Uh, I think it's part of it. I mean, he's definitely been blinded by his own pride. We know that. Um, today Satan does, is very active. The Bible speaks of schemes and methods that he uses. We know um, his activities are restricted by God and accountable to him. Um, Job describes in Job 2, 4 through 6, that he must even ask permission, right? He said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give his life, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh. He will curse you to your face. The Lord said, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. There we find God giving permission. He has to ask, grants permission, and sets limitations. You see, so he's still within God's sovereign scope and plan. He's not acting outside of that. He's only allowed to do that. Matter of fact, when you get to Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, we find Satan and his schemes. He must ask permission here for, he asks, the language is he asks permission for all the disciples, especially for Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and that word you is plural, by the way, so it demanded to have you all, uh, that he might sift you, singular like wheat. So he demanded all of you. He wants all of you, but he specifically wanted you, Peter, out of all of them. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The implication is you're going you're gonna to fail. You're going to fall. Um, so even though Satan and his demons hate God, they still, in the midst of all of this, we find they still can't defy his authority. Okay? Jesus constantly demonstrated his authority over Satan in the Gospels by rebuking demons, by silencing demonic spirits. Um, they didn't want to be obedient to God, son. They didn't want to be obedient to Jesus. They often kicked. They often tried to negotiate. Hey, there's some pigs over there. Can I go over there? Right? I mean, there's negotiation trying to take place. But at the end of the day, they have to do whatever God tells them to do. Right? Still, he's still sovereign even over them. Um, they never disputed that they had a choice in the matter. Mark 1.27, uh, they were all amazed, the crowds did, that they were questioning among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Jesus gives a, a powerful illustration of his power over Satan in Matthew 12. This, he says here, Matthew 12.25-29, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. 
And if Satan, this is where, remember, they were accusing him of being Satan. So his argument is obviously like, well, if I'm Satan, why in the world am I casting out Satan, right? Um, he says, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, that's a term for Satan they gave, Jewish um, religious leaders gave, but whom do you cast, do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Very interesting, that last part there, kind of illustration. Satan is pictured as a strong man guarding his wealth in his house. The wealth he's guarding is symbolized as people, humans, his personal treasure. He's put into excruciating spiritual captivity. They have no relief unless someone stronger comes along to bind, right, the guy, and then release them. And that's exactly who Jesus says he is. He is stronger. He can bind him. He is able to take out the strong man. Um, Jesus also hints at his uh, Satan's soon defeat. He even makes it clear that he is already judged. Uh, this means that Satan is, uh, is bound to some extent. When I say bound, there are some people whose belief is that Satan's completely bound right now. Um, I don't think that's correct in Scripture. But he is bound to an extent. What I mean by that is he's limited. Um, he, he can't limit the spread of the gospel. He can't stop his inevitable end. So he's limited in that way. But he's not yet finally defeated. Um, here Jesus says, John 16, 11, that because the rule of this world is judged, present tense, not will be, already is. It's that fancy word we talked about before, the inaugurated eschatology, or the easier way to put it is the already not yet thing, right? He's already judged, but not yet, right? Right, so he's not, he's not completely eliminated, but he is kind of already, right? There's that, that sense going on. But we do find that his soon defeat will take place. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Um, Hebrews 2, uh, verse 14, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, speaking of Jesus, might destroy the one, Satan, who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So he's, he's got the power to destroy him uh, through what he went through on the cross and rose again. And again, his final end is made very clear in Scripture. Uh, it will be the lake of fire. Uh, Matthew 25, 41, the eternal fire there was prepared for the devil and his angels. That's where they are going. And then uh, at the end of Revelation, Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Which, by the way, is a clear indication, if you haven't taken my class on heaven, Satan's not the one doing tormenting in, in hell, okay? The, the modern image of he's down there with a whip and, you know, with unbelievers, and he's, no, he's being tormented day and night, forever and ever, okay? Um, he's not the one giving out anything. And so, um, so Satan is not, not hindered from reading scripture, okay? Um, he clearly is, we've looked at passages well, you know, uh, well versed in his theology, uh, but he, he has to know his final end. So we can speculate that he is so proud that he has deceived himself and now believes that God is a liar, right? God, the Bible's not true, and somehow he's going to win in some capacity. And so the battle goes on. Him and his, his angels that he has brought with him there, Revelation 12, 3 uh, through 4, swept down a third of the stars of heaven, speaking of angels, a third of them came down with him. 
and he's got it pulled them all in. And it's also, um, he has got, not just that, but he also has people who are allies in his army by demonic influence, or simply living according to their, their simple nature. Such people the Bible describes as false prophets, false teachers, false Christians. Again, all throughout Scripture, and we'll look at them next week. Second Peter 2 1 speaks of false prophets and false teachers who are among you. It's interesting language there. It's not out there, among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. We find 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen again, disguising themselves as angels of light. And then we find Galatians 2, 4. We find them here, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in, the language is really graphic there, he slipped in to spy out our freedom we have in Christ, right? So they, these false brothers, and they were, they, they slipped in to the church, and they were there. All right? All right. Demons. When you say they're false teachers, you're saying they're behind these men, or affecting their minds so they're teaching... There's demonic influence behind the false teachers, yes. Mm -hmm. And again, many times it's not like they're going, yeah, yeah, saying, what do you want me to say? Okay, let me say that. It's, it's not like it's scripted or it's given to them. Again, what we get from scriptures, a lot of times it's unbeknownst to them. They don't even understand that they're serving satanic or demonic purposes in the things that they're saying. But the Bible is going to make clear, any false teaching is going to have demonic source behind it. All right, demons. They're created angelic beings who have rebelled with Satan against God, they are self-aware and submit themselves under Satan in an organized fashion, but are destined for destruction. Okay? So they're, they're, the first thing we know is they're created beings okay, who rebelled. We've seen already in Colossians 1, 16, and Revelation 12, that, um, that these angels have rebelled, right? The devil and his angels have been thrown out and taken down. So we know that they've rebelled against God with Satan. We also find that because they are angelic beings, like angels we looked at in Daniel, they also are able to move swiftly and quickly and to, uh, to get to places. We find in Daniel 10, verse 13, let's skip ahead a little bit here, sorry, under letter A there for you if you're looking. Uh, Daniel 10, 13 says this, it says, the prince of the king of Persia withstood me 21 days. That's a reference to uh, demonic um, power there. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And so we find some normal physical barriers do not restrict their activity. They're able to even move within the spiritual realm. We find in Mark 5, 8 through 13, he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name, this is a demon now, is Legion, for we are many. That's a fascinating term. Legion is 6,000 soldiers. Think about that. This one guy had 6,000 demons. And he went, they went, the passage goes on to tell us that they sent us into the pigs. They went over there, and there's 2,000 of them that rushed off the bank into the sea. So it's 2,000 of them, 6,000 demons went into them. So multiple of them can occupy one spot. Uh, they're not limited by spatial, that's what I mean by that, they're not limited by spatial features, they're not physical beings. Um, this also implies their weakness too, because you don't, you really find one demon able to, they usually work in groups, as we find in scripture, there's usually multiple of them working um, in different capacities. So they're angelic beings, they're also uh, what I call self-aware. They know who they are. 
and they know who God is, and they recognize him as the Son of God and as the judge. Uh, Mark one twenty four. what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I mean, good theology, right? Uh, same chapter, verse 34, says, He healed many or sick with the various diseases, cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him, right? He's like, if you told him to be quiet, stop telling him who I am. Um, Mark 3.11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And in Matthew 8.29, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So they're very much aware of who they are. A matter of fact, they even feel that. They have feelings. That's what James told us, that they shudder. James 2.19, Demons believe and they shudder. They're afraid of that reality. Luke 8.28 says, What have you to do with me? I beg you, do not torment me. <laughs> I beg you, please. And so there's definitely a sense of fear, a sense of, um, um, of knowing their ultimate end. They also seem to know who the followers of Jesus are. We find Acts 16, 17, this girl, uh, uh, who was, uh, the context goes on, was under demonic influence, was saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now you would think that's a good thing, but she was telling everybody this in kind of a mocking, kind of derision-oriented uh, way, and Paul had to rebuke her and get rid of it. and they didn't get any like that because she was owned and they were losing money because she lost her ability to tell fortunes. Then there's this really interesting passage, honestly. I don't know, I don't know, I don't have a lot of explanation for you for it, but it's just read it. Acts 19, 13 through 16. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaimed. So they were seeing Paul cast out demons. They're like, hey, this is a pretty cool deal. So they're using Paul's name. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Right? They recognize. I, I don't know Paul. I don't know who you are. Right? And, so they, and they had that authority to do that because of that. Let us see is submit to Satan, as we've already seen already, and I'm going to skip through this uh, section, but they submit to Satan. Again, they're, they're called his demons, right, in multiple occasions. They promote idolatry and false religion. We see that in 1 Timothy 4.1. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10.20, we find that uh, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. So when they're worshiping their false gods, they're actually worshiping Demons. Demons are behind the false gods and false religions of the world. Again, that's not very that's not very popular in that language today to tell that the uh, the source behind Islam that that uh, that they're a demonic influence uh, that Allah is a demon in in in, uh, in that religion. But it's true. That's exactly what the passage is saying. Um, Revelation nine twenty. We find the rest of mankind who were not killed did not repent. It says, but they, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze. And then in uh, Revelation 2, 9, we find these, it says, Jews who are not, they say they are, meaning they say they're believers, but they're not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue of Satan is reference to a church. I don't think, they, I don't think that was her name, by the way, synagogue of Satan. Um, but it's a reference to that church even being used um, by Satan. 
They seem to influence uh, human government and culture. This is part of what I think Ephesians 6.12 says, that there's rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We find them in Revelation 16.14, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. So they're very much behind kings and kingdoms and things that are going on. We see that in Daniel, right? They're behind some of the kings of Persia and all of the prince of Greece and all of that. They're very much behind a lot of the human government and culture that we have today. Letter D, they're, they're organized. Um, just like the holy angels, demons seem to be organized in some fashion. Uh, Jesus seems to imply there's multiple strengths. Here in Mark 9.29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So this was a demon they couldn't cast out. Disciples couldn't. Jesus, Jesus is teaching us here even that there is different levels of strength and power within certain demons. Um, we find, again, that Ephesians 6.12, there seems to be some, some grouping, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, but these are all kind of forces and names of demons. Uh, it's also interesting, by the way, that, um, that the enemy, Satan, doesn't necessarily have all of his troops, if you knew that or not. Not all demons are free to roam. Matter of fact, there seems to be in the Bible three different locations of demons currently. There are demons that are allowed to roam now on earth. There are demons who are temporarily confined to what's called the Bible the abyss, um, where they will be set free in Revelation to, to wreak havoc on the earth. And there's others who are permanently chained, imprisoned in hell. There are, so really, if you, if you took my heaven class, you know this. There's, there's no human beings currently in hell. Hell is a synonym for lake of fire. It's an interchangeable term. There's, there's, there's Hades now, but there's no hell. Hell is, is the ultimate destination after judgment in Revelation 20. So currently, there are no human beings in hell. Um, there are demons, though, that are chained there, that are permanently there right now. So we find, uh, that's why Luke 8.31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, right? A place of holding where they would be held until the book of Revelation to be released. But then we find these interesting characters in Jude and Second Peter. Jude 1.6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, so somehow they rebelled after their rebellion, <laughs> left their proper dwelling. He has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Same can be said in 2 Peter 2.4. Angels that sin cast them into hell, committed to the change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So there's certain ones. Um, by the way, in that context is always referencing back to another interesting passage I don't have time to go through tonight, is Genesis chapter 6. You know, the sons of God there in Genesis 6. Those two passages are referencing something that happened there. There seems to be some sort of sexual perversion that took place, whether it be demonic-influenced men, or whether it be demons themselves that had relationships with women. And it's a really interesting, bizarre, hard-to-interpret passage. But nonetheless, the point in these passages is that there was some sort of demonic influence there that superseded... Um, their, their line, and they drew the line, they, they now have, have been chained and unable to leave um, that place. And to put all of that into perspective, another very interesting passage, 1 Peter 3, um, says that for those demons that are currently chained down there, when Jesus, you say, what happened to Jesus when he, when he died in those three days before he came back to life? Well, that's what Peter tells us. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed, okay, very important word. There's two words in the Bible for pro proclaiming or preaching. There's euangelion, which is the word preach the gospel, 
Okay? That's not the word used here. Some people will take this passage and be like, oh, Jesus went down, he preached the gospel to people in hell, and they got the opportunity to repent and come back. No, that's not what he's saying. The, word, the other word used for proclamation is the word to proclaim victory. Okay? It was used in the battlefield. You, know, you proclaim victory. That's the word used here. So Jesus went down, proclaimed victory to the spirits in prison. Context is going to tell us it's those that were from Noah's day. It says right there, because they fully did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So it's interesting. So it's all, I always say, like, Jesus went down, he died. This is similar to Colossians 2. Um, here, let me give you that verse. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, where it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There was a sense that Jesus died when he was victorious, and Satan was like, yay, I won, went down into the depths of hell and went back to the angels that are chained there and basically just said, I won. You know, <laughs> it was like a I don't know. Getting released. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, uh, I got you. I don't know what he said exactly. He proclaimed victory over them and then rose again. Uh, very interesting um, passages in that way. Last thing I'll give, and then we won't get to question 28. We'll get to that next week. Uh, defeated. Again, their final end, they will be tossed in the lake of fire with their leader. We find that in Isaiah 24, 21 to 22. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. Um, in heaven, the kings of the earth on earth, they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, and they will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. And obviously Matthew 25, 41, uh, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All right? Any questions? So the, the last few verses I gave you are probably like, whoa, we can revisit, think about those last few passages in Jude and Second Peter and in First Peter, and we can, we can, Genesis 6, you know, those ones are like, I just gave you like 30 seconds on those. Yeah. Um, yes? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, so, you know, unfortunately we can't pick up tones of voice, right? So um, there seemed to be some of that, because remember there was some references where Jesus would say he shut them up or silenced them to not get them to tell who he was. So there was obviously a reason for that, probably. Part of it was probably a mocking or kind of a derision type of statements they were making. So, yeah, I think that was part of it. Um, yeah. Some of it may just be, I mean, some of them, they're just very much scared out of their minds, right? They're like, but please don't, don't torment me yet. And so there was a sense of that, too. So, yeah. Um, if demons are um, just spiritual beings, are they able to experience physical pain when they're in hell? Ooh. It's, I mean, the, the words and language it's used is words like torment, which is, I mean, I don't think the Bible is making those words up to be like, you know, I don't think you can be, you know, spiritually tormented. I mean, I don't know, like, um, torment has physical <coughs> elements to it, right? And so, yeah, no, I think there's a physical element to it. Um, yeah. All right, so they, think about those last few passages I gave you. Those are those are a lot to look at. Genesis six, and one in Second Peter, Jude, and one in First Peter three as well. Those are interesting passages. Feel free to ask any questions on them, and we'll get to names of demons next next time, along with the kind of activity and strategies of Satan. We'll look at. Okay. In two weeks. In two weeks. Yes, two weeks. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Uh, bless these folks as they leave. God, make us aware of what's happening around us. Make us vigilant uh, to know you and make you known. In Jesus' name, Amen. I know we...